Welcome to Train Rush, your failing political process of train game podcasts, brought to you by Dave Moss and Craig Taylor. We'll start the show this week with some tiny bits of news. Is it news or is it promotional material? Let's pretend it's news for credibility. I guess we can't really talk about games we've been playing because we're going to give you a whole podcast on that. So Craig, what what exciting bits of news marketing material have you got to share with us? Well, yes, available exclusively to our listeners and anybody else who finds the links. We now have the legendary 18xx calculators available online. And by calculators, I mean glorified Excel sheets that, well, they aren't just glorified Excel sheets. They are, in fact, Excel sheets we use to drive the end game of our 18xx games. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things I think becomes really essential, particularly when you play in the longer games and the ones that require quite a little bit of mathematical calculations, uh, anything you can do to accelerate that play for some of our, our newer listeners out there. This is one of those ways of doing that. Using poker chips, using spreadsheets to calculate these is always a good thing. I think Essential's probably overstating it. I doubt Francis Tresham was using Excel in the 1980s or whatever to develop uh, 1825. But that being said, very helpful for um, calculating out the mid-game payouts, rolling those up. and Particularly accelerating the tail end of a game. Yeah, sure. And making the close out just a simple case of look put the share numbers in and we're done yeah i will be doing a screen capture of how to use the things over the coming weeks look out for that coming soon then back to my old it days of doing uh, video demonstrations of customers i will use those mad skills for your benefit the other thing is less i guess news more of a poll reach out to us if you'd be interested in a t-shirt not just an any t-shirt is that a trainer's t-shirt or a general t-shirt? Are you giving your clothes away at this point? No, I was, I was thinking I would just pay for everybody to go down Benetton and get a plain t-shirt of a colour of their choice. So I feel very magnanimous. No, it's a branded t-shirt. A friend of mine who happens to work in retail said that it was actually less faff than I thought to ship t-shirts internationally. And the thing that's always stopped us doing branded merchandise before was I wanted to be able to stand behind the quality of the things. And by using digital presses in various regions, that gave us reach and convenience. But the problem is you don't know what the product's going to be like in each region. So I think the compromise come to us of shipping's not so bad, mate, is good because it means we can get it printed here in the UK and stand behind the product. Yeah, I think let's keep exploring. If, if you're interested in it, let us know. If you are interested in it and, and, and we get enough interest, then we'll, we'll progress things forwards. Yeah, we'll do a batch. We've got a roadmap. We just need to make sure there's enough interest that if we do 100 shirts, that I haven't got shirts for the next five years. Or, or you can just turn up to every event you go to self-promoting the podcast at that point. Well, I intend to do that anyway with one shirt, but 100 might be too many for that. So, on with the episode, the bit most of you have probably downloaded it for rather than our gregarious self-promotion. Another thing beginning with G is Great Britain, and this one is about 18 Great Britain. Indeed. Uh, it's a game launched in 2018, uh, designed by Dave Berry, published by Deep Thought Games and their partner Golden Spike Games do the accelerated promotion. It's available through that channel to people. Plays two to six players. The speculated game time is between two to five hours, and it introduces a lot of things you see in other games. There's some things that are familiar. And, and some things that are also quite new in this one. Craig, do you want to talk through some of the features? Of the features, the grab bag of features. So there's everything in this one bar the kitchen sink, one would answer. It's broadly engineering focused. Let's talk about its features and the listeners can decide for themselves. It features split capitalization, 
a one-dimensional stock market which tracks performance with multiple jumps on the stock market possible. It features company growth. It features variable company floating order. It features non-directorship and insolvency. Player powers as an optional module. Classical privates. Five game phases. Two types of train. I'm going to pause for breath here. Uh, a niche tile set, which is made all the more challenging through a particular type of restrictive tile lane and hopefully a map that you all appreciate hey dave well yeah and i think all of those things sound very interesting i think it borrows elements we've seen in some other games uh certainly things of uh 1835 1841 1860 1880 are very key through here but as you say there's also a few unique bits i just heard 18 noise there dave there was just a string of numbers yeah uh, what what does it borrow from so things like the trains that run uh, a number of big cities and, and a number of small cities. I think, you know, companies growing up from, say, five shares, so 20% shares companies to standard sort of 10% size things. I think, you know, very, very obvious and very key in it. In 1860, you have companies that can be insolvent and have no director owning their, their operations. That comes through very, very clearly here as well. I think some of the double uh, O games operating around procedure type things, particularly around exporting at the train at the end of a period of time, is in place as well. Can we ever stop talking about Lonnie? I mean, he seems to feature in every single one of our podcasts in one way or another. He's just featured in 1880. It's, it's crazy. Sorry, Lonnie, we're not obsessed with you. It's just that you're very prolific. So take that as a compliment. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in here. And I think the only way we're going to do it justice is to do it by the numbers, right? Yeah, I, I guess the thing to set out first is just to talk about what's the clock. The game works on a couple of different ways. You can end the game by maxing out on stock price. Uh, I think, again, that's seen in a couple of other games elsewhere. But you hit the top two spots on the, the stock market and that will trigger the game end. Alternatively, the game ends when there are no more trains left. Quite apt, I guess. A train game can't have any more trains, so it finishes. Sure, okay. How achievable... Uh, is that is now the time to ask how achievable those clocks are? How easy is it to blast up to the top of that stock market? I certainly think you can make good progress early in the game. You know, my, my standard opening tactic of powering high and probably suffering for it later in the game, but that certainly puts you in a good footing. I think you know your par values are between fifty and hundred, and and I think the top of the stock market is about three twenty. Now, obviously. As you touched on earlier, and we'll talk in a little bit more, you, you can move based on the amount of revenue your company is generating, and you sure. can do multiple jumps. So Kind of like 1846, right, Dave? Yeah, and I think 18, 1860 has it, 1862. So, so again, you know, that's, that's a common thing. So you can really move up there quite a lot, but of course then your growth is slowed somewhat when you potentially grow a company from 5 to 10 shares. Unlike 1846, this game features quadruple jumps. Also, unlike 1846, there's a general inertia to move up the stock market because you're not punished for underperforming per se. If you withhold, you go backwards. If you pay anything up to one times your value, you go forwards. In 1846, if you pay less than half your value, you go backwards. So, paring high in this, or more point too high, inverted commas, versus your likely performance in the early game, isn't a death knell. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is, is, is again, seen in, in, in uh, Mike Hutton's designs in, in 1860, 1862. Good performance rewards, but average performance or, or managing your finance appropriately potentially, you know, doesn't limit the company from growing. You can get a significant way into the game and, and, and be progressing pretty well up that stock chart. And to touch on the point you made, again, Dave, about when you grow, 
it hurts your performance a bit. Well, it's a one-time penalty for growing. Your shares devalue on the basis there's more of them in issuance. Which is absolutely, you know, a logical real-world approach. You know, as you dilute people's shareholdings in your company, as you're expanding its stock capabilities, then um, then that clearly is also going to, you know, uh, indent investor confidence. Sure. Uh, just to wrap some real wordness around it. Um, let's talk at the start about the, the, the privates and how you get, you know, how does the opening uh, gambit of the game work? I would argue it's broadly similar to an 1822 auction at a, at a macro level. It's a single auction where all the items are bid on in parallel. On a player's turn, they can place a bid on one of the privates. Or they can pass, assuming they are winning at least one of the privates. Potentially you can keep bidding and try and win multiple privates if you so wish. But if you wish to save your money, you are going to have to hopefully win whichever thing you win for the least money possible. Yeah, and I know we've talked about this before. I don't fully agree with the 1822 analogy you're making. I absolutely understand the point you're making there. It's a, it's an auction where you can be bidding on multiple items. I think the really interesting thing I've seen in this is the, the restriction on you to, to pass is you have to be winning. Mm-hmm. Don't recall seeing that elsewhere. I'm sure many people will tell us when I'm wrong. Well, to be clear, Dave, that's why I qualified it with broadly similar. Because on a macro level, the action distribution is the same. You know, what you can do on your turn is bid on a thing or not bid on a thing. And there's no, we are all bidding on this thing currently. I've got the freedom to bid on what I want. And it's all out on display at the same time. Those are the similarities. Of course, there's differences. In 1822, you've only got a limited number of cubes you can bid with. It's possible to be outbid on everything and win nothing in 1822. But if I was trying to think of an analogue which is similar to this, that's the closest one I can come with. But you're right in that it's a unique beast. And it's certainly one of those ones that's trying to do something different in that initial auction, which which is, you know, credible. You know, we should absolutely, you know, be excited by that because it's very easy to rack up and do the same thing you've seen before there. So, yeah, yeah that's it. And, and and what are we auctioning for at the start? It takes an 1817-ish approach with this, there's broadly three classes of private, right? You've got station reservations with a parachute function. You have value amplifiers for two off-board and one on-board location. And you have free tile lay actions. By free, I mean bonus tile actions uh, in given regions associated with privates all the privates also pay you revenue for having them they're also associated with an onboard hex reservation and up until a certain phase in the game i believe it's blue other players may not build on said reservation without your permission and once blue comes into effect they may build on there without your permission forcibly closing your private now to use the private's powers you have to close said private and you'll get a one-time payoff of the private's operating around revenue as compensation for it being closed. That's the function end-to-end bar one private, Dave, that I'm sure you'll be happy to go into. Yeah, and the, and the only other thing I was going to mention is obviously the payout when they close is an interesting thing. That I like that. That's, sure. um, that's a nice addition that, that you know, you're trying to recoup the cost that you've, you've outlaid initially in the game and the fact they give you a little bit more back generally helps with your ability to work out what the the payback is on that. But yes, the other private that's in there is the certificate that gives you the ability to use the presidency of the Black Line, the London Northwest Railway. You do not have to start it when you win that private. I think you do. It's actually, you, you're not allowed to start another one until you've started that one, if memory serves. I may be getting this confused with a different game. We'll fact check this shortly. But my understanding is you can't start a different company until you have started that one. Okay, I was only looking at it from the purpose of the private closing. The private doesn't close. The private doesn't close until you've built on its reservation. So LNWR has its home station is considered its reservation. 
And when you build on it, like all the other reservations, it will forcibly close the private, which means that if you were to pair the LNWR, say, with one of those parachute companies, you can actually pop it up somewhere else, somewhere arguably less profitable because it's further away from London. You are absolutely right. As you say, once you've got that, it infers that you cannot buy shares and other things. Vice versa, other players can't buy shares in the uh, LNWR until that started. So it is a little bit of a handcuff, absolutely. Oh, but it's interesting because if you can couple it with a parachute company, you could do an interesting thing where you could run it somewhere else, knowing that you've got access to London when it gets a bit more interesting, arguably. Still getting the private income in the meantime, which is which is obviously always good at the start of a game. It's a decent return ratio as well, the, because it's factored on the fact that most games, you're going to close it straight away, and therefore you're only going to get the payback once. And it's, only, it's a reservation. You've still got to pay for those shares. But if you could stretch out that return for longer by using the parachute token, that's actually quite appealing. I'd like to try that. Yeah, no, it's an interesting, interesting thing, definitely. And, and so there's... There's some room to manoeuvre with those privates. So you'll auction round of those. And what happens if not everything gets auctioned? So you said all players can pass when they're winning a bid. Obviously, there are more privates than players. Sorry, I say obviously. We, we know that because we've read the rules and played the game. Yeah. Um, but, um, but you know, what, what happens in that scenario? Well, then we'll repeat proceedings, but we'll repeat them in such a way where everything's discounted from face. So normally the minimum bid was face value. Now it's face value minus 10. But players may choose to pass this time. And if everybody passes, we'll discount by 10. And so it gets to the point where the return on the investment is so insane, you're going to buy the things. Other thing we should be aware of in terms of the rules on this bit, at two players, there's an adjustment where players have to win at least two things before they can pass. And as you say, that, that that's, that's a type of mechanism that's been seen elsewhere, that gradually decreasing price to stuff until, as you say, the incentive is there on the player to buy it, to not let somebody else have it at a ridiculously good, ridiculously good price. I think it's a more positive incentive than having a pseudo OR where all the people with privates get their dosh and we're going to do it until you say uncle. I think this feels a bit better. Yeah, that just forces players to buy something they may not necessarily want in an auction to keep the game going. So it kind of, you know, strong arms players in a direction. But that's for another episode, not for today's episode. There's also something else you get, isn't there? I'm leading you here. Yeah, please do lead me. Lead me to water and I shall drink. Optionally, there is player characters, which sounds awful. Sounds very Euro game. It's, it's, yeah, indeed. It sounds risky as heck as well. Like These player powers have the potential to horribly distort a game that I don't want distorted. But credit to Dave. He's actually been very restrained with these. They're functionally mini privates that people can't interfere with in the sense that you're going to get them in a some sort of allocation to start. We have a ho- we have a house full for how they're allocated, but there is recommendation in the book. And they don't cost a lot. They don't give you any revenue, but they'll give you a flair in the game that you get to use at some point. And typically the return's quite minimal, but it, it gives you something to shape your play with. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, one of, our, one of our friends who played with us the other day, he referred to it as a weak private. It's exactly that. You get some inferred benefit. It may be a small bit of finance or it's the ability to do something potentially out of sequence or or to the benefit of a company you're running. And it comes with a minimal overhead at the start of the game, but I actually quite like them. They're subtle enough that they're not in your face and changing the game, but there's enough there to go, oh, yeah, I quite like that. And I, and the couple of times we played with them in, you know, I've looked at them and gone, oh, which is the best one to choose? And they're very well researched as well. Like George Hudson's power is he can add money to, from his own coffers to inflate the payout for the company to artificially make a payout once per phase 
And George Hudson was, I think he was imprisoned or certainly was involved in financial shenanigans in Britain's railway history. Every single one of them seems well-researched and their power links to kind of what they do in history. Indeed, you are absolutely right about George Hudson. And, and yeah, they're, they're absolutely inherently linked to that historical period of the growth of training. So you've got Isabel King de Brunel, George Stevenson, Robert Stevenson, uh, Thomas Cook. So lots of people around that, George Pullman, all people in that era who had an impact on the industrial and railway revolution in, in the United Kingdom. Very well researched, very well integrated from a theme perspective. Indeed, and that's just take a quick sidebar on definition of thematic. For me and for Dave, I believe, it's if the mechanisms marry to the dressing. A theme is a setting, but something's thematic if what you're doing is linked to the setting. And these guys are thematic. Their powers totally link to their place in history. So credit to Dave. He's actually managed to make a thematic 18xx with this feature. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that sits well, which, as you say, first reaction when he read about it might have gone, oh, I'm not sure what we're doing here, but mm. good one. So, yeah, anyway, sorry, that was a very patronising answer from me there. Apologies. Dave, I'm used to it. We've done 10 of these now. This will be the 11th. I'm used to patronising. Yeah, but that's not normally on the air for our listeners, Ben. Normally it's me being patronising to you, Dave, but let's not go into that. <laughs> so that's enough with the initial auction. Uh, let's move on and look at the stock rounds. So they behave normally as you'd expect an 18xx stock round to do. Sell as many as you want, buy one share, obviously not buying something you've sold previously. But also there's an extra thing you can do which counts as your action in a stock round. Additionally, alongside that, as long as it's not the round a, the stock round a company forms in, you can convert it from a 5 share to a 10 share company. I think we touched on it very briefly earlier, but what that in effect means is that you drop the share price by two levels on the stock market and then you will gain five times the the value as an incremental capitalization uh, into the company treasury and those shares will then go into the open bank market yeah it's, let's talk about that split capitalization split's a better word sorry yes incremental wasn't the right one thank you for correcting me well it's initially it's incremental right so at the start of the game you're not gonna have very much money to start these companies and you're buying you're buying at market price to you know to put the money in the treasury which is classic ink cap yeah so at the very start of the game you can float the company with just a president certificate yep and in the second phase you need 60 percent. and the second phase for in terms of that takes place when uh, i believe it's when the green trains come into effect so you've got quite a while where you can start companies on just a president's cert par it low if you want par it high but better be able to afford a train so the game goes broadly through three phases Par with one cert, par with two certs. Which is 60% at a, at a five-share company. Or, towards the end, companies become only parable at a 10-cert level. So they go into full ink capitalization mode. You're buying 20% president certificate, 10% member certificates, for want of a better term. Still getting that 60% threshold, ultimately. Indeed. And because they start life as 10-share companies, they can't grow. They can only get their money in that way. If you started the company during the, uh, the first two eras of the game, for want of a better term, you have the option, like you say, Dave, of growing the company. The five shares will be issued to the bank pool and you will receive 50% of the adjusted stock price. Yeah, you, you, the bank recompenses you for those shares. So the key thing here is the stock price takes the two steps backward. You then multiply that out by five. That's how much money will land on the charter. It helps you with working out the kind of money that's coming in. There is also one other interesting feature of the stock round as well, and it's the passing. Whoever passes first takes the first pass certificate, and there's a number of pass certificates for the number of players around the table. Mm -hmm. As per standard convention, when everyone has passed the round ends and you take the appropriate number in front of you, 
as again with most 1888 conventions if you pass you may come back in later and certainly on more than one occasion as we've played it we've seen an instance where maybe the player in second place has passed taken the certificate and then come back in later to react to something has happened and all the certificates move around ultimately so there's some interesting turn order manipulation there What's the consequence of those new numbers, though, Dave? You've employed it and inferred it, but you haven't actually stated it. It's your turn in the next stock round. Rather than anything moving in a clockwise fashion or anything, you bounce around the table based on the number you hold. And I think we've seen similar type of things in other games that, that use financial, you know, the amount of money you've got left at the end of a stock round to calculate your relative position. Sure, and it creates, a, I would argue, a messy circumstance called bow tying, where the player activities bounce around the table potentially in a figure eight or a bow tie or a tie fighter or whatever object you care to imagine. I think mechanically it makes sense. Practically, sometimes it becomes confusing at the higher player counts. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've had one or two issues where people have taken turns out of sequence. I think nothing that wasn't walkbackable as such and manageable, but but yeah, you just don't always want to introduce that confusion You know, where possible, really. I'm not sure it adds that much of a strategic space do I feel like the complexity cost is—is is it worth it? No, and and I think you know, and certainly in the game we, the last game we played just beforehand, for I think the first quarter of the game we all passed sequentially. I guess that's going to happen in the majority of games, but yeah, I feel sometimes when you look at a game that subverts the norms, like eighteen twenty-two, I keep referencing that one. It's like a Groundhog Day. When you look at games that subvert the norms, you would hope the norms subverted often. Like in 1822, I come out of the stock round with a bit more money because I'm trying to save money for the next auction. That's me subverting the norm of I should have to spend all my money in the stock round to make my money work for me. That, for me, makes it an interesting space. If most of the time you end up with sequential passes, meh, why have the rule? Yeah, I can see it works in certain scenarios, but as you say, for a large portion of the game, it's just a... Not an annoyance. Let's use that word. Let's be daring. It's it's, it's a frustration is the word I will use. Anyway, stock rounds. In a, in a nutshell, pretty familiar. There are a few interesting quirks though as well. And then just to recap on selling shares. So ultimately, if you sell, your shares will move down. Fairly standard 18xx convention, but I think a little bit more unique in the, the one-dimensional stock market space. Quite often, they don't have as much share volatility movement, do they? Yeah, normally, when I say normally... When you consider things like 1846, if the director sells shares, they go down. If other stockholders sell shares, they don't. I typically see the 1D markets not behaving that way. It's not to say it's unique. It's just another little difference. Mm. Um, and I think also interestingly in this one as well, when you get to the end of the game, the, the grey phase, at that point, it's only president sales that affect sure, sure. Uh, affect share price. So it, do, it does stop late game stock trashing just for the hell of it yeah it goes into full-on 1846 mode and it marries quite well to the clock right because if you allowed stockholders to be able to trash companies during the gray phase the game could potentially never end on a stock clock it'd be crabs on a pot it would make that clock moot whereas you just buy a few shares trash the company buy a few shares trash the company until i'm winning and we'd all do it so it's a zero-sum thing and the trains would run out the fact that they say you know they dave says other Dave says when Grey's come into effect, 1846 mode on makes that a possibility and therefore more interesting. So let's go to the operating rounds. Hurrah, hurrah. The crux of a train game. Certainly the crux of this train game. Maybe not the crux of all train games. This one is interesting. I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about tile lane. A lot of time, Dave. 
because frankly this one in terms of the time budget the mental tax is mostly about tar lane there's no cost for laying tiles dave well no cost bar terrain cost terrain costs are weird in this one functionally the only terrain in this game behaves kind of like tunnels in 1846 where it exists on the boundaries between hexagons but instead of the person completing the link having to pay some punitive cost you pay to form the start of the link and the exit of the link where it differs from 1846 isn't just the who pays the cost and it's just start of the link and the tail of the link it's also the degree of cost it's a hundred pounds to start the link it's a hundred pounds to complete the link that's in this game is a lot of money for a company to find i just wanted to jump in on those so, so they're an interesting conundrum the way they're structured on the board when you look at it as a flat board you think oh those are quite expensive to cross why am i going to pay that and, and as you realize the way they're structured and set up you can actually see the paths through so they almost guide you in a way to not build through them in some way so so i know we played i think it was the first time we played and our our host very kindly put some settlers of Catan roads on there to denote where they were, which was brilliant as an aid memoir to see it on the board. But also, you just looked at it and went, well, I'm just never going to build across that link. I'm going to build around it because there's my obvious route. I'm just stunned by aid memoir. Uh, it's very fruity, Dave. No, I thought that was a very good tool. In the early game, it very much forces your hand. You're not going to want to spend 200 to shortcut over things it's all but impossible from what i've seen it's a huge investment but late game when you're sloshing in money and you almost certainly will be sloshing in company money by the late game then you use them to create interesting bypasses and, and, and i just want to clarify i think just to just to kind of pick through your explanation there a little bit it's it's 50 pounds per connection so to build the bridge across both sides of it is 100 i've just doubled it wow yeah i was, I, I was thinking that was insanely expensive it's still insanely expensive dave when a two train costs 100 and there's no full capitalization free money floating around and you've had to waste money on something you didn't necessarily want in the opening auction these starter companies aren't going to have a spare hundred to complete a link. Absolutely. Trying to find that capital in the company is going to be a challenge. However, one of the player characters gets the £50 when people build across that. So there may be a strategy there. I've not had that character personally, but there may be a strategy there to say, I've got a company, I'm going to just build across those ridges because that gives me money in my pocket. Whether that's a viable long-term strategy for the company... Who knows? But but something out there for people to, to try. If you guys have had experience with that, let us know how that went for you. Yeah, I found when I played with that character in effect, it made those ridges effectively even more impassable because you just didn't want to give that guy money. Moving swiftly on, how many tiles are you going to be laying a turn? You're going to be laying two tiles. Lane stroke upgrading two tiles per turn. Heck, it can even be the same tile twice if you so wish. Lay then upgrade straight away. Restriction. You can't perform an activity on a city tile more than once during an OR. Yeah, and that's interesting. You know, the, 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 the rules explain quite explicitly around having two tile activities, but only one of those activities may relate to a city. Obviously, I've just recapped everything you said there. But it's a very interesting thing because I know there are other games out there that allow multiple tile lays, maybe with a financial penalty or something. It's interesting because it's not an insignificantly sized map. It's not the biggest map or, or the smallest tiles, but... You know, the fact that you're growing that rail network quite quickly and quite aggressively through this is an interesting point on the development of the game. Initially, at least, it gets the map some shape pretty quickly. 
it does become a point where actually there's a lot of cities on that board. You'll find yourself wanting for city actions. That can become a bottleneck. Once a board sort of mid-game-ish gets a bit fused, uh, if your company is locked out due to aggressive tokening, you can just find yourself doing city action. That's it. Yeah, it slows down later in the game, absolutely. There's a, a natural cadence as you go through. Other feature in the tile lane, still going on about tile lane, is this game features a lot of double O hexes and some double X hexes. Double O hexes are slightly different to other double O games. In that, the greens are actually slightly different, believe it or not. The browns are slightly different in that they converge during brown as opposed to remaining double O forever. That, in this game, is the exclusive remit of the double X tiles, which double Xs are even higher value than double Os. They have a slightly different upgrade path than double Os. They become ultimately more complex than double Os. Having three exits at their peak of complexity, which is brown, each node on it will have three tile edge exits, which are cross potentially crossing over the other one. Never the same as the other one, they're always unique, but they can cross over like spaghetti. They're quite hard to read. Yeah, there's a lot. And, and, and certainly with the double Xs, you've got to plan ahead which the right tile you're putting in at yellow and green is because otherwise you'll limit your choices when you get to brown. Oh, there's no flexibility. Once you're down a path, you're down a path. So there's quite a lot of early game thinking and, and, and manipulation to make sure you've chosen the right earlier tiles to support the ultimate end game you're trying to get to. Certainly is something we call out in the rules. There's also an element that makes that sort of problem even more crunchy. <laughs> I was exactly about to refer to that. So I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges in this game is it's uh, restrictive in its tile laying approach. So in 1886 terminology, a restrictive tile lay is one where when you upgrade the tile, obviously you'll maintain all of the existing uh, links that were in place but additionally you must be able to run on the new link that is put in place and i think it may create a challenge definitely certainly i think you know we played a two-player game once of this and we built lots of small little loops in our track to make sure that you could come around and run on the new bit you were going to put in it makes synergies more interesting as well right because some of these companies that start on a tile which let's say it's a typical double o tile normally in a other 18xx game you just upgrade that tile to get increased value unless you've set up the routing tiles so you can get back to your own tile but from a different hex edge you can't upgrade it just to get the value you have to be able to route back in and access the new track you add to that tile to get the upgrade alternatively run another company that can get there and do the upgrade it's definitely one hand washes the other thing with the routing yeah the synergies is an interesting one we we've seen that in a couple of games because there's there's 11 12 companies in the game you know you're going to get two of those if you can get things to start working well together, that definitely helps you. Well, company count is by player count. True. It's an interesting scaling factor. So at the higher player counts, you'll have 12 companies in the game. But you're still likely to have two to three companies per player in the game, I think. So you have some opportunities to do that, and there's something to be aware of is which companies are players buying up, how are they trying to work that together with them. Sure. I think, if I was to be honest, I'm going to go slightly into analysis mode here. It's almost too much. And by that, I mean... There's a lot of crunchy thought that goes into that tile selection and it's very easy to become overwhelmed and effectively play it quasi-randomly where you go, that tile works for me now. I could sit here and compute for another 15 minutes but actually there's another four people at the table who I'm being kind of rude to. That one will have to do. I won't look at the future options. 
which seems utterly deranged because in almost any other game of 18xx, the tile set and the routing rules would be direct enough that you could think it through without consuming a unit of geological time to get to the right result. Geological time, is that something that happens with glaciers and things? Do you take that long on a turn, yeah? Well, it feels like it when someone else is taking their turn. Just to touch the last thing on tiles, there's a couple of special tiles that are floating around in the game. So there's some waterway tiles, the estuaries that sit across, I think, the Bristol Channel and up in the Firth of Forth in Scotland. They provide a link that will add revenue to each train that runs through it, which which is interesting. There's a traversal bonus. Yeah, there's a cost as well to put those tiles in place. Also, when it scales down to a lower player count as well, there's some tiles that hive off the board. You, you, when you're playing with, with two players, you play either a north-south vertical or an east-west thing, and you either cut Wales or Scotland off in effect. Yeah, which is achieved with artificial red hexes that tighten the board in. It's very clever. I think that's actually a really nice feature. The, the thing I would say about the blue hexes, they're weird because they cost £50, which is as much as terrain cost costs. Cost, 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 if a terrain cost could cost, cost. But the return on them is quite high. If you think about it, it's £50 to lay it. Sure, you have to route in a certain direction, but it's £30 or £40. 40 for Scotland, yeah, yeah, yeah. When you think of that return versus a train, and you're going to get it for the rest of the game, and it can't be taken away from you. And anyone can run it at that point. It's a no-brainer to run it if you're in that area. Um, yeah, the interesting thing is there is a, a private or one of the characters, I think, that does some mitigation in that space or makes some money. I think there's a private that reduces the cost of laying the Welsh one. So Reduces it to zero. The Taff Vale private, I believe. Mm. There's enough going on with the tiles, and we'll come back to that as part of the analysis. So you lay tiles, then you potentially lay a single station. You may use your private to uh, do a parachute station, as we discussed earlier. And just one point as well, when you grow up a company, you get some more stations as well. We didn't mention that earlier. No, sure. We'll come to laying stations, Danny. So, start the game, you're going to have two stations, okay? Small companies only have two stations. If you want to get more stations, like all things in life, if you want more, you're going to have to grow up, Dave. And then you'll get another two stations, and you'll spend them on some double O and tiles or some double X tiles because they're horrible, and that's what you have to do. And I feel like you wasted your money at that point. Yeah, but they're cheap, right? They're only £50 each. Or free. The Caledonian, I believe, has a free station as its second station, so... Nice, yes, yeah, a nice feature. It's nice to have some 1846 like flourish where there's some hidden stuff on the charter for you to discover and go, Oh, that's strange. Didn't notice that. Really pleased I started that now, or wish I'd seen that before so I could have started it. Yeah, indeed, you could have parted it for lower. In fact, I seem to remember in our, our last game, I started the Caledonian. We'll talk later about some of the directorship and insolvency. It never came back to me, so somebody else got the free station. More suboptimal play from Dave there. Sure. <laughs> As I recover from Dave's. Um, internal monologue made external we'll talk about the next part of the phase which is full pay or withhold technically known as dividends to people in the 18xx world sure you either issue out all the dividends or you withhold if you withhold you go backwards if you pay it out you go forwards once twice thrice quadruple depending on your performance kind of like 1846 except without the half pay option it's weird because well is it weird or is it predicted i'm not sure the Opportunity for double and triple and quadruple jumps means that withholding isn't necessarily as punishing as you might think. Getting out of sequence on the trains is a recoverable situation. Taking an early wash for later game benefit, or even just parring a bit lower, Dave, so you can buy more of those shares, that's a thing you can do. Never, never. Always par for the most. Get as much money in the company so that when I give it to somebody else, it's a really, really good set of money they're getting out of it. Yeah, I've rise with a game of 1830, Dave, but less said about that, the better. 
no, the it's it's interesting to have that option. The quadruple jump, although it rarely comes into effect, when it does happen and the company's right down in the ditches and somehow recovers, it's amazing to see. It makes a very interesting analysis of you know what a good stock is towards the end of the game because if you can get something that's maybe towards the bottom of the stock chart but going to jump a lot more will appreciate in value alongside paying out at the same time, then that could be a better stock than stretching your capital to buy an expensive one. Obviously, at the top end of the stock market, the jumps between each space are bigger, so that makes it harder for the companies to gain traction for those bigger leaps. I agree, and I think what you're inferring there is that maybe the ratchet on the stock market means it might be worth holding the bigger stock. I would argue that maybe you weren't, but the point I would make is that if it's harder to make a single jump at the top and you can easily make a quad jump at the bottom, the appreciation at the bottom can be very appealing. Oh, no, I agree. Absolutely. That's exactly the point I was making and right. very cool. badly. Right, cool. In terms of when you're fine-tuning your portfolio towards that latter part of the game, lower-valued stocks can offer much better return than, than you know a single big stock. Assuming that the company isn't low-value and got down into that trouble because it's structurally poor. Or blocked or something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other factors may influence. Yeah, sure. Past performance is no indicator of future performance. Your mileage may vary. Feels like disclaimers we should use for the podcast. So, yeah, indeed. Then you go on to buying trains. Companies in this game don't have to own trains. Kind of odd. Also, presidents are on the hock for buying companies a train if they don't have one. This is because the game's main features are about to come out, Dave. Insolvency. Indeed. So, as you say, a company can be declared insolvent if at the end of its turn it doesn't own a train. If it's insolvent, that starts to limit what it can do. It must run and withhold until it can buy a train. And it must buy a train as soon as it can if it goes insolvent. Indeed. Although, interesting, there is one caveat to that rule slightly in terms of uh, companies cannot buy the last train out of another company. Yes, that couples with insolvency, right? Because... Well, it couples with insolvency, it actually couples with director list companies, so that's probably a good time. Another way out of your of train obligations is just to sell the company entirely. In this game, companies can run without a director. There's no limit to the amount of shares you can sell in the bank pool. And of course, if someone's a candidate drop and they, they've got two certificates, then they can receive the company. That's normal. But typically, they're going to drop that hot potato as well, and the company's just going to be all shares in the stock market, and maybe no train, maybe with a train but certainly nobody obliged to buy it a train. Yeah, and the company will happily exist, the game will run it, it limits its actions, it doesn't lay track, it doesn't lay stations, it withholds, it rents the top train from the deck. As such, because you have the ability to just divest yourself of the liability, right? And like you say, and have the game run the company on autopilot in the way you describe, it's important that you can't let players abuse that and go, okay, I'm going to take two trains, these two companies, I have a train each. I'm going to take them into company A and just kill company B. That's why that rule exists. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice rule. I really like the way it's there to police players. But it's interesting, you know, certainly over the last couple of plays, as we've got more experienced with the game and its system, you know, we've, we've started using directorless and insolvency much more, as you say, to take ourselves off the hook, to use it as a timely way of letting a company look after itself rather than you having the obligation. And certainly in my last play, you know, I, I, I think I touched earlier, we dropped, I dropped a company fully with the expectation that nobody would be interested in it and, and it would be there once it had got the money together to buy a train later on. And because of share round priority, it got bought out from underneath me before I could react. Let's talk about the mechanism you were desperate to talk about, which is how companies recover. You mentioned in part that they lease a train off the deck. They lease the worst train available off the train deck and they will run it 
and withhold and their share value as such will go backwards and they'll keep getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper until they're a bargain and they will automatically buy a train as soon as they're able because they're directorless and insolvent and of course spotting that timing working out when that company is likely to have enough capital to buy a train in it can be really key for the for, you know the preceding stock rounds indeed I like the insolvency stuff. I didn't used to, I won't lie. On the first time I played this round, our friend Richard Klein's, it was a six-player game, which I always think is not necessarily the best player count to explore a new title. And I didn't enjoy those features because there was so much other stuff going on, specifically the tile lane stuff we mentioned, the way the stock market works with the jumps, the privates, the characters. There were so many bits... Um, I don't think we took characters that time, but there was chat off them. That, that lever was just not appealing to use. Yeah, and I think first playthrough on almost any game, but in particular this one, there was a learning curve, more, more a steep curve. I'm going to disclose a bit of meta stuff here. We now made it kind of a rule for the podcast that the first time we play it, we try and play it at three players. Not necessarily because we think a lot of these games breathe their best at three players. There's a lot that aren't necessarily great at three players and aren't that interesting. But it gives us room to manoeuvre room to make mistakes and and yeah not have a not have a challenging experience and come back a second time with more knowledge and insight let's just pull the levers and encourages us to pull the levers maybe with a full player count you don't get the chance to because the scenarios don't pan out in a way where it makes sense to and i think so we've touched a little bit on non-directorship and insolvency there is also another way a company can raise some money if it wants to buy a train Mm, yes we talked about stock round company growth you can, if you are truly uh, in trouble, but you don't want to go insolvent, and you're still a small company, you can do an emergency share sale. Yep, you grow up in exactly the same process. It's just that your share price drops an extra level before you get the payout of those five shares that are going to go to the bank. And it sounds awful, like, why don't I do it in a stock round? But actually, it's not that bad, because you're going to potentially get a triple jump or a double jump that you might not have qualified for otherwise. The thing that we didn't mention about these companies, when you sell shares without a train, should probably mention that. This is going to be a bit peppered around. When you sell shares in a company with no train, you only get half the money back, Dave. I thought we had mentioned that, but if we didn't, apologies. There is also another thing regarding shares that we didn't mention earlier, and that's, of course, around ownership limits. As a player, you can buy 60% out of the company, uh, out of the the IPO, off the charter, yep, whatever terminology we're using there. You can buy 60% from that offering. You are allowed to hold up to 100% of the company, but the remaining 40% you must buy from the bank. Mm. So again, that's one of those mechanisms where when you grow a company up, you're putting shares into the bank pool, potentially for your own future benefit to gain and buy those. You can win-win out of that arrangement. company gets money, you get shares to increase your shareholding. It's also a compensation for other people trashing your company, right? If they buy out of the initial offering, and then sell it because we have share trashing or they don't see the opportunity there anymore. Just because I like doing that to you occasionally? At least, indeed. At least you have the compensation that it's opened up a new avenue of increasing my level of ownership for the company, right, that otherwise wouldn't have been available. I think it's quite nice. It's a nice kind of one-hand giver from one-hand take of away. Make something that's normally a purely negative experience partially positive. I think it's a nice touch. Yeah, absolutely. I like the way it controls and allows you to manipulate the players. I think we covered all the features, Dave. So you rinse and repeat, that's a fair. Oh, we haven't talked about the trains, actually. Uh, it's a bit weird. We normally do this early on. We should probably talk about this. There are two types of trains. There are normal 1835 style. N plus M trains. So they run to a specific number of large cities. 
and a specific number of small dits slash doinks. Uh, towns. Whatever we call them. We change it every podcast, I think, don't we? Little places, Lilliputnian lands, whatever. Back reference there from our favourite episode. They're quite cool, but unfortunately they're cognitively quite easy. They scale up well through the start of the game, and there are a couple right at the end, I think a 5 plus 2 as a permanent at the end of the game. And then you have express trains, which... Conceptually, I quite like. They behave like express trains typically do in so much as they skip the towns. They don't pick the highest paid cities. They don't do any multipliers. Instead, they do a distance bonus. So you count as the crow flies between point A and point B, uh, or the opposite ends of the route, add 1 or 10, and that increase the run value by that. I think that's quite cool. I think it's a nice idea of a government incentive for running a longer route. It's equivalent of adding a doink to every hex you run, all but. You know, I mean, I appreciate you could be running a route, a circuitous route, which actually covers five cities but only three hexes. But in this game, it's not that likely. Well, it incentivizes you to run long routes at the end because you get more benefit out of it. Sometimes, you know, you're locked in, you can't do that, and you're forced into short routes, and, and it doesn't seem that good. But obviously, yeah, if you're adding £10 per hex to the run, if you can stretch something across there, particularly on top of that with the incentives that you get for north, south, or east, west bonuses as well. Talk to those, Dave. So if you can connect off-board locations, north and south, east and west, and run trains through them, then you get additional revenues added to the income of the train company. Unlike 1846, I keep mentioning that, where that's a flat bonus, in this that scales by face. Yes, the bonus is in, is linked to that. It's in effect an off-board bonus that's added. And of course, if you're running a north-south in a full five, six-player game, I think, you know, if you're running from the north of Scotland down to the south of England, you're potentially looking at 12 to 14 hexes. East to west can be anything from about five to six can be eight if you go for the extreme east option and the extreme west option. London, which is broadly central on the board, and you'd be mad to skip typically, is about six, seven away from, from the Cornwall. the west coast and, and Wales. Yeah. yeah. So it's the thing I would like to mention here is that the north-south bonus is flat because the X trains are going to be running longer hex distances. The east-west bonus scales by phase because you're typically running the express trains for less value on the crow fly bonus. A very clever little touch. The first time you look at it, you think, what? But when you actually examine the behavior of the trains on that map, it makes total sense. Yeah, the, the, the north-south bonus is, as we say, is incremented in other ways. Yeah, indeed. I think we've mentioned all the features, right? Like I say, we'll run it until companies perform well enough to get to the top, or we run out of trains, be that through company activity or share performance. I think the only thing we haven't mentioned, at the start of the game, only six of the companies are available to run. Okay, One of them is LNWR. Then there's five other random companies in the assuming full player count, scales by player count, that are candidate to be floated during the first share round. Second share round onwards, all the companies are available. It's a small feature. It will make the game play out differently each time. Yeah, it's, it's a variable setup feature. Mm. It's randomly decided other than the LNWR. It doesn't excite me as much as it does in 18 Island, though, Dave. It can create some distorted things. So our last playthrough this last weekend, we basically had all of the Scottish companies come out at the start, but I tried to be King of Scotland and failed dismally at that point. But um, I don't like the Welsh, Dave. No, exactly. Well, that was the problem. You see, the Welsh company wasn't in until the latest tranche and Lindsay had taken the private, so... I'm going to say something risky here. It's rubbish. That Welsh company is garbage and I can't see a situation where it's ever going to be someone's preferred company. 
But if it's there ahead of the GWR, there's maybe a synergy for it. But yes, it's much weaker than GWR by a long way. I'm putting a face right now that you can't see this podcast, but I am putting a face of disgust. We should not stream this recording at any point ever. Heavens. No, but the reason I don't think it's as strong as 18 Island, right, for me, that particular feature... We had a player skip the first pair of operating rounds because, oh well, I'll buy stock and other people's stuff because the companies in tranche two are much better than what's left in tranche one. Did they actually affect their performance in any way, shape or form? Was it that much of a burden? Were they filled with envy? Oh no, I'm not developing this rubbish company. No, they didn't. I feel like not enough has been made of that feature. It kind of needs to be more of it or not there at all for my taste. That's that's my take on it. And since we're on hot takes, let's go into Analysis mode. Let's talk through our thoughts on the thing. I think we've described the, the entity enough. Let's say about what we think about the entity. Yeah, and I think just picking up on where we were ending that previous discussion, I find a challenge in this game is the uh, geography on the board. So we've talked before about you know, having quite a large board and quite a lot to do, and I get it. Things are adjusted for aesthetic reasons and to make it fit in, but it all feels a little bit in the wrong place. I look at the map and it feels like it's been twisted and turned a little bit. That doesn't resonate with me as a citizen of the United Kingdom. I look at it and go, Southampton-on-Sea looks a bit odd. Southampton-on-Sea is correct. You mean Basingstoke-on-Sea, right? Basingstoke in... Yeah, I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm super pleased Basingstoke is there. That makes me very happy from my point of view, but... Um, Southampton-on-Sea is where it should be, Dave. I know, but it, look, no, it looks like where Bournemouth should be if you look at a proper geography map. Oh, I see. Sorry, yes, I slightly mislead our listeners there at that point. But, you know, it, it's there and they've got really significant towns and, and you know, rail industry areas that are there. So so from a historical point of view, periodical point of view, I'm, I'm fine with it. But just something seems to have been slightly distorted. London is too far across. London's where Southampton should be in some ways. Okay, I'm less bothered than this by Dave. It's an abstraction. It is me being super nitpicky, so I will apologise for that. No need, it's fine. Your view may resonate with certain people, right? I mean, almost everybody who's looked at it has gone, that's a bit weird, that's in the wrong place. Some people can let it go, Dave can't. I probably have more issue with the fact that Scotland seems to be five times bigger than than it is or it, it does seem to have a significant mass in relative terms on the board yeah you know? well you know well, the bit of it you interact with seems to be scaled up yeah and then the bit that's off board there's a distortion of size of things or it feels that way yeah i certainly don't feel this way when i'm playing 1822 and that certainly takes liberties with geography but not to the point where i'm looking at it slightly cockeyed yeah and at that point you know one of the things i noticed a couple of times when we played 22 you know you, you kind of build those naturally aligned railway lines you have a, an east coast and, and a west coast line running in that one here you don't seem to have the board space to permit a similar type of thing well the ridges are too rigid <laughs> the ridges are too rigid say that five times after a pint of uh, suffolk cider that's on the coast the thing here is the incentives are a bit different Remember with 1822, you have those historical destination things. I think that's a clever touch because it does encourage pseudo-realistic track lane. With this, those ridges are there to encourage pseudo-realistic track lane. They just feel like a negative tool. With 1822, you do what history kind of did. You get a reward. With this, you get clobbered if you don't. And so I think, you know, we kind of touched on that. I think, you know, tied into the board geography is probably... And the next area that kind of gives me some concern as well and discomfort is the, the track. And, and we talked about it a little bit earlier Yeah, this on. is shared. I'm not going to let you take the uh, beating on this one, Dave. Neither of us really feel this resonates. The track, for me, is too complex. Now, I was speaking to one of our famous listeners, 
Clearclaw, JCL, uh, about this online in a sort of private chat, and I'm sure he won't mind me sharing. I expressed some consternation about the complexity of the track and the time budget it takes and how it's quite boring to watch someone unpack. I personally find the XX tiles certainly hard to wrap my head around. They're not impossible. I'm certainly developing a degree of mastery with them, but watching other people struggle with them five games back on me is frustrating. His statement was, well, to be honest, that's probably a product of weak players. Now, academically, he's right, okay? If you were better at the routing game, those tiles wouldn't be a problem. But to be honest, it's just too much for me. I don't want to spend of a six-hour experience, say, watching five hours of people messing around with double X tiles, spinning them around, looking at books to see what they're going to become. I think that, you know, the, the, the challenge is twofold there. You spend, a, as we say, you spend a lot of time for little optimization, um, and particularly wrapped around that, the, the tokening that will particularly go on in those spaces is quite aggressive. But also, I think it's not just a suboptimal one. I think these tiles are pretty much unlike others that are seen in any games. And, you know, you really have to do a second take. And as you say, you know, once you've played a few games, that's fine. That that sort of settles in a little bit. But even then, you know, we're, what, five, six, seven games in now. Five, eight or nine. We're still looking at it going, oh, I'm not sure that's the right tile. What does this do? Is this the right thing to do now? And as you say, you spend some time internally, or in my case, externally monologuing that. And yeah, it's just not productive time in the game. I want to be clear. I'm going to, we're going to be talking about this for quite a while because it sounds very negative and I want people to be able to understand what we don't like and what I don't like. And then they can decide for themselves if it will affect them, right? The double X's and the double O's are all over the board as well, right? They're like the default city is a complex city. They're the key choke points. Yeah, but they're not just the key choke points. It's not like there's one or two and they're in a key place. The ratio of normal cities to double X stroke double O cities is off the charts for this one. Like in 1879, there's like three double O spots on the whole board. With this one, the single cities are rarer. So when you've got more of these double O's and double X's peppered around the place, or it certainly feels that way, it means you're interacting with that rather horrid tile element more than you're not. A lot in the game, yeah. It comes up a lot, you're trying to manage it, and then then the added challenge is, as you say, with that restrictive tile upgrading approach, trying to work out, can I legitimately put this tile down because I can run on the new track? We've had to catch novice players messing up on that many times. It would have wildly distorted the game if they were allowed to just do it. The other thing about it that I'm actually going to be positive about, it does encourage a strong token war because those double O's will ultimately converge, but initially only one person's getting in there. If you're in, not in one, you might want to be in the other, so when it converges, it's locked out. The double X's are always going to be separate. They're always going to be diverged. So... It does put an emphasis on token war and adds a level of interaction there that's absent from other engineering type titles sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we find late on in the game, you've got the whole centre of the board is, is both locked out with tokens. Additionally, it's full of lots of complex interlocking track and trying to work some of those routes out and understand how that works. Again, also calculating your run value can be a time-consuming thing, particularly when you get a new train for the first time, you know, it's the, and you've changed the train approach from being a plus train to, to an X train. But without that sort of choke in the middle, then paying for the ridge tiles to make bypasses just would never happen. I guess that's an interesting kind of narrative arc of this thing. The ridges are unappealing whilst you can route through and, like I say, noodle your way through the middle 
when all the st- tokens go down and there's no way through the middle because it's that's just how it is, buddy. Suddenly paying 100 to get over a ridge and then 100 to get over another ridge and another ridge. If it's your only way out of destitution, it's worth doing. And does that segue into my next point I was going to make quite nicely at that point? I don't know, Dave. I don't know, Dave. Does you should, it? You does should it? be on the same page as me here, but, but money is the next point, you know. There's a lot of money in this game. I think, you know, you can take that twofold. With there being no bank limit, that's a a clock that is missing in this game. And I'll touch on whether I like that or not later on. Players have a lot of money coming in from a number of different sources. And as you say, particularly if you can strip yourself of some of the uh, liabilities that would drain your capital, you have a lot of cash flowing around in player hands, but also companies can start earning a lot of money. You get lots of stuff dropped in for share sales. If you have no director and you're, or you're insolvent, you're withholding every time. So, you know, it just feels like there's a real large amount of money floating around in the game. You never felt cash-strapped, I think. Can I unpack that? Yeah. Okay. So the issue with that, for me, more money means more cash happening. Okay? If we tried running this for like 99% of a game without a spreadsheet, in fact, that was last Sunday's game, it was interminable. Absolutely interminable. Because of the amount of times that you're having to issue cash to a company, insolvent companies receiving money, and the amount of money they're receiving isn't an insubstantial, here's a 21. It's suddenly, it's a, oh, can you put 126 on the charter? And it's over and over and over again. Yeah, my poker chip set, which is, is pretty well constructed, was basically really struggling to cope with the amount of small fry tens that were moving around. And I was struggling to deal with the number of events, right? And the number of divisions we're having to do off the rail and boards calculator. You know, it's there's a lot of that. And undoubtedly, I think that adds to the game's duration, the game's length. I know we touched on it earlier that the you know the suggested playtime is between two to five hours. I think that's one of those areas, particularly on the first play few playthroughs, that that mean that that's quite an ambitious time. I'm wildly optimistic, I'd argue, but it's not to say it's going to be deeply unfun for everybody. But it's just don't expect to get it done in a game's night in the first few play, whatever the player count. The other thing about the cash thing, and for me, it's, I know you don't like there being this much cash, okay? I'd argue you could look at it, it's coming from a design approach of let everybody have all the money and then it's a case of comparing best scores. Oh, you got 8 million, Dave, that's great. I got 9 million. We're both winners. And everybody gets satisfaction of partaking in the sport. For me, it's not like a running event where we're all trying to get our PB. I prefer an 18xx to be a bit more austere, okay? I find the competition of who can fit as many 50s in their wallet to be less exciting about where am I going to find dinner. I find that risk of starvation or that risk of financial brutalization to be much more exciting than who's optimized the best and the worst burn I'm going to take is half value on some shares. And that's just, it feels more like an edge. That's like I got an edge on you rather than I ruined you. Yeah, the austere thing is absolutely one of the, the charms and, and things that appeals to, a, to, to to both of us, I think, for 18xx and to many people, you know. And I think, you know, it's an, always an interesting challenge because there's that race to get to, to the first permanent train normally, but usually that is less performant and powerful in here because you have a switch through the permanent train set. Train set, that's the first pun of the episode, I think, isn't it? Um, but the, the, you have a switch through the trains whereby you switch from the, the plus trains through to the, the express trains. So that changes what train you want to buy later on. Point of tactical note, I think that 5 plus 2, normally in 18xx you go, oh, I'll get the first permanent train, I'll just milk it to the end. In this, those X bonuses are so big. The 6x at the end is the one to get, absolutely. You want to dodge those plus trains. Those brown plus trains are kind of like, if I get that, 
I'm running a shuttle service for the rest of the game. Situationally, they're okay. Depends on the location of the company, what's around it. But yeah, the, the express trains just seem inherently better. And, and actually, by being the first one to get there, which is a virtue of good play in some senses, actually isn't rewarded in some ways. Yeah. And okay, and the other or th- not as well rewarded. Sorry, that's it. Well, unpack. What do you mean by that? Sorry, um, unpack that for me. The first player to get the first permanent train in their company should be set and running well and dividending. You know, and and again, yes, you are in that situation here. But the players that are going to get the later trains and particularly can drive that ability to get those fives and six X's will be ultimately rewarded better. Well, I'll restate your point. Well, to make sure I understand it, actually. So you're saying that normally something that's a degree of skill and a thing you appreciate, well done, you got the timing right, in this is, is pseudo-punished. Yeah, I think so. Well, it's not necessarily punished, but I think that the opportunity, the timing is a different clock to what you're used to seeing. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough, that's fine. That makes sense to me. I think our listeners can probably unpack that for themselves. Other thing, I think, I'm coming back to that track stuff again, right? It's almost missed opportunity here for me. I think a lot of the mechanisms in here are really supremely exciting. Seeing the 1860 mechanisms in another game, and a game that actually is big enough to let it breathe for longer, is really cool. I think I think that could be really, really cool. I think the types of trains that feature, they're quite interesting. I think the distance bonus thing is cool. I think the way it's coupled to the east-west and north-south thing is interesting. I think the player power stuff is nice. And the nature of the privates having a degree of texture, but not overwhelmingly so, all works, okay? My issue is so much of the time budget and the cognitive budget is used on the routing puzzle. And the routing puzzle for me is part of the game that defines value. To me, 18xx is a shares game. And the route building on the board and the train portfolios for the companies is what defines the value of the share. I value your company at blah because it's got a five train and a six train and it's structurally good. Therefore, I will buy your share because it's less than blah. Okay, your company now only has a train that's going to rust and there's some station markers going down. Therefore, I will sell your share. The share part of it is the interesting part of it to me, mostly. And that's it's my preference. I'm stating that outright. Your listener preference may be different. That's the interesting part. The root building and that part is what defines the value of the shares. For this, my focus is so much on the root building that those other cool mechanisms like insolvency and director listeners and value assessment of companies... If I have the ability to do it for the first part of the game, by the time we get to the end of it, I'm ground out and I just don't care. Yeah, you haven't got the ability to make some of those. So we come at it from a slightly different angle. You know, I, I'm slightly more of a fan of the operational engineering type ones. But even in this, and again, you know, I think I'm going to echo pretty much the same points you said there. There's a significant overhead to that portion of the game that to me is challenging. As you say, it mentally burns you out. Even if it doesn't burn you out personally, Dave, you're nine plays in and you've got the tile set down. You introduce a new person to it, you're waiting four times as long on their turn. You introduce two new people to it, you're waiting a long time on their turn. And this is no indictment to the people we've played with. This is consistent with me as a new player. It's consistent with every new player you bring into it. And I'm sorry, I don't want to watch someone else noodling tiles for five hours. So the challenge there is how do you cultivate the group to play that every time? You've got to then all agree to invest a lot of time and exclude other players, which I don't think is... That's right, I'm being extremely hypothetical there. Of course, exclude other players or exclude other titles, right? This is the only XX I'm going to play for a number of months until we're playing it quickly. I tell you what, that's what we did to review it for the podcast, and I don't want to play it for a while. Yeah, no, I'm kind of of in the same boat, I think. And in terms of 
we know we do that. We know we focus on playing stuff to drive the podcast and the content. But one of the things that I think is more rich about the, the 18xs genre is the, the sheer volume of games. And I love playing different ones. I'd, I'd play a different one every week if I could, but then we'd never record an episode ever again, I think, would we? Sure. But let me pose a question then, okay? Think about this. We hit 1879 like madmen, okay? We hit 1822 quite a lot before we reviewed it. We've hit 1836 Junior a lot in preparation for an upcoming review. Has any other title, by the time we're done playing it and ready to record, left you quite as jaded? No, I don't think so. Yeah, are we consistently jaded? That's what I'm trying to say to our audience. Every time we finish and we play it and we do a podcast, we hate every game we play. I don't think that's the case. And I don't hate this one for the record. I'm sorry to use that word. But I don't necessarily come away tired of the game. From my point of view, I sit here and go, there's a lot of things to like about this. It does things, that, as you say, in some instances you see elsewhere, but it does them well. There's some things that are unique to this that it does well. It shows a lot of respect for the history. Yeah. It brings some new things to the table, even though it's only a minor thing, the, the characters. But here's the thing. Academically, on paper, it's a great meal. I should love it. It should pass the meaningfully different test. Arguably, it does pass the meaningfully different test. As a part of my collection, it's meaningfully different. Do I actually find it fun? Hand on heart, sometimes, until the game grinds on to the point where it beats the life out of me. We've had that conversation a couple of times as we prepare for this episode. You know, the fact it is meaningfully different is great, because if it wasn't, then it's probably not even worth talking about. So, you know, that has to be applauded. Things that I see elsewhere, well, would I choose to play this over some of those other things? Maybe getting 1860 out that we know we can play in a, probably a shorter time frame. Obviously, it's capped. It has a lower player count. And ultimately, I think one of the reasons this game is probably not one I want to get to the table in a hurry at the moment is that long tail. You get three quarters of the way through the game. You've done a lot of the work. And then you've got quite a slow procedural end. Mm. And depending where you've positioned yourself, you could be, because there's a token war, you could have nothing to do. Whilst other people are there doing their Greco-Roman wrestling for minor gains, or we might pin him to the wall. You're just there watching going, yeah, my company runs for 28 again, double jump. Oh, sorry, single jump now because we got to the end of the game. It can be pretty dull if you're in the wrong seat. In other games where they've got a longer end, I'll give you an example, right? With bad players, inverted commas, bad players, 1846 can take a while to play out towards the end because they're not generating the correct amounts of value. But there's always something to do. With this, you can quite easily, without doing anything significantly wrong, just position yourself with an early to mid-game company that gets nobbled by the end game. Yeah, I think, you know, going back to a point I started to make earlier, I don't think we fully saw through. Uh, you know, I understand the concept of a bank limit, uh, that relies on players to play optimally, as you say, to, to bust the bank out. But this feels to me like a game that maybe needed a bank limit in it. And the other two clocks, you've got the stock chart and the trains going out are there as catch-alls if you don't play optimally. But, the, you know, there seems like... I know the train numbers scale for the number of players. I think there's too many trains at the end of the game. The tail is long. Well, in our experience, it always feels a bit too long. So the train clock is interesting with the exporter dumping a train off to carry the game going on. But it only dumps if you've not bought a train. Yeah. The train pool cycles whether you whether you trigger it through the player or not. Yeah, kind of like 1880, right? If the players have train activity, then the exporter won't activate. The exporter will buy the trains nobody else wants. It's cool. It's a nice way of driving the clock. Why I think I prefer cash clocks, however, is once the game's a foregone conclusion and someone's generating bonkers value... As a definition of generating bonkers value, rather than the players all having to scream uncle, let's just call it, like we did on one of our two-player games, 
Uncle, uncle, I don't want to watch the next 20 trains being that's, expended. That's just because I was winning and you didn't want to suffer that anymore. Yeah, sure. If someone generates bonkers value in the cash clock, then they close the game by sheer volition of the fact they've pulled the bank out. No one has to suffer for too much longer, we'd hope. With this one, we've seen it where you can go, oh, we can predict it's going to end in six turns time and we've thrown five hours into it now. Shall we just do the six turns? Everybody looks at each other, praying someone says no. That's that's a problem, I think. I'm going to go back on a positive and say that there's so many good features in this and it's so many well-thought-out things with the scaling, the scenarios for the two players, the nature of the bonuses, and it all feels really well integrated. Nothing sticks out like a sore thumb. It feels like a really well-honed thing that everything kind of links to the other and it doesn't just feel like he's dumped 1860 bits into another game it feels like an inherent part of the game once you've got past the tile set and you actually have the brain space to see it's part of the game i think if 1860 is one of your favorite 18xx's this is one for you go out there and explore it with the knowledge and the insight that hopefully we're bringing to you that yeah you say that but the point i'm making is it's not commercially available it's not an 1830 go out and buy it it's only 60 quid whatever oh it's not an 18 lilliput go out and buy it it's 30 quid and if you don't like it you'll sell it on easily because it's broadly accessible this is niche you're probably gonna have to import it if you don't live in the usa it's towards the top end i think of the pricing range there's a lot of stuff in the box yeah yeah yeah. they're, they're value for money absolutely but but it's got to be a conscious purchase decision i think you know we, we've had a conversation with one of our friends we played with the other day and, and you know it's do, do we think that it represents a good purchase point, particularly given the fact we have to pay a premium to bring it across to the UK here? There's some irony in that. I'm tempted to sell my copy. And I don't ever say that about 18xx because I'm a, a collector of the thing. I probably won't sell it because I'm hoping that my views on it will change as I develop mastery of the tile set. And I think that's a reasonable position to take. I think there's more plays in it. I think we're just a little bit not wanting to have those plays at the moment. I'll ask the question we always ask in this episode. I'm pretty sure I know the answer to it, but um, would you recommend this for new players? If you want to make sure they never play 18xx again. So if there's someone you really didn't like and you wanted to pigeonhole them out of 18xx entirely, the routine challenge with the XX and 00 alone, Dave, is enough to put somebody off the thing for life, is my view. I'll take a slightly less cynical view, but I think, yeah, I, I agree with the sentiment. Absolutely, it's not for new players. If there's somebody who's got a, a really good mental capacity and can take a lot of this stuff on board pretty quickly. When Why would you make them focus exclusively on routine when they could play a, a more rounded 18xx game? Say more rounded, because actually this one's incredibly rounded with a number of features. But why would you not play one that has equal emphasis on other elements or more to the point, doesn't force you to look at the tiles continuously? They could be learning about stock volatility. They could be learning about IPO to... Um, bank pool transitions they could be learning about they could be learning about company cycling they could be learning about all these weird and wonderful things as a new player learning about double x tiles and double o tiles is so niche i agree i, I think ultimately you know if you're going to try to take people on this kind of journey you'd actually say play 1860 first that would give you a similar yet cut down experience and if people go wow this is amazing this is really what i want to play bigger brother in some senses 1860 is weird and wonderful in its own way with the the trains have to connect together in a chain 
kind of thing and 1860 suffers from that 1846ism where a lot of things you're teaching in it just don't apply to any other title true yeah 1860 and 1862 both by my cut and break a lot of the point stands right yeah i think it's back to the if you like 60 there's a lot for you to like in this box as well i think just kind of wrapping up a little bit here i'm conscious it's been one of our longer episodes no harm in that i I think no 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 i think there was a lot to discuss hopefully it was a valuable discussion it's been good for us hopefully it's been good for you to listen to you know we i think we've been quite divisive in some of the the commentary we've no have we i think we've largely broadly agreed what i want to say is this is dave berry's first design isn't it and for a first design, it is phenomenal. Like the scope he's taken on, the bravery to take on all these different things, albeit he freely admits in his rule book that he's cribbed a lot of stuff from other places and fully credits it like an academic like himself would, you know, which I think is wonderful. I think there's something to applaud there. I just feel like to a certain extent, maybe when you're that close to a thing, you might enjoy it for an hour longer and be able to play it an hour quicker than most of your audience. Yeah, and all I was going to seek was, you know, obviously we, we put quite a lot of information out there. Be very keen to get feedback from people, I think. You know, let's hear what your experiences are, what people are thinking in this game. Are we right? What have we missed? We can likely have missed something. Yeah, I know. I hope we're not coming across as controversy, Lords. Most of our 18xx episodes are love letters to the genre. That hasn't changed. But if we are covering something and it transpires we don't like it, I just don't think we're doing you guys any favours if we say we love it irrespective and there are aspects of this title that i don't enjoy maybe it's one that we put down put it away and and, and six twelve months time we come back and revisit and have a very different experience yeah indeed like i say right of reply as well if anybody wants to talk to us about it online if dave wants to come on the episode and tell me what we've missed if someone who's a super fan of the game wants to come on and tell me why they love it and what i'm not seeing i'm game for that i truly am like we said before in our very first episode, we are not the last word on anything. We're barely the first word on anything. But I hope you enjoyed the show. And at that point, how would people get hold of us? Yeah, they would argue with us on Twitter if they had a low character count. But they tend to argue with you more on Twitter than me. Sure, that's fine. I'll front that. That is at the train rush. They can send us horrible pictures of mutilated trains and and mutilated train rush logos yeah on instagram with the underscore train underscore rush or you can join our facebook page yeah just use a facebook search function to find us the train rush what else could you do to get in touch with you could email us email is nice because then only we see the abuse uh it's craig at the train rush or dave at the train rush or if you want to get hold of both of us do info at the train rush dot com yeah, you missed that bit off. And then lastly, we have a guild on Board Game Geek, which is 3342. Indeed. Thank you for listening. Really appreciate it. I appreciate it's hard work to listen to the negatives. Indeed. Thank you. Uh, uh, and it's not one of our shorter episodes, so thank you for lending us your ears for a lengthier time period. Indeed. Cheerio. <laughs>